Hey everybody, you're listening to Outside of a Dream. I'm your host, Daniel Link. What is Outside of a Dream? Well, besides being a quote from my favorite scene in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, uh, it's a podcast focusing on new horror cinema, uh, short stories, viral horror videos, just the horror genre in general. Uh, Horror is a very special genre to me. Even though I used to be a big scaredy cat as a kid, I grew into it a lot of ways, and I started watching scarier and scarier stuff as a means to, you know, scare myself, kind of get the thrill of being a little too scared to turn off the lights at night or look at my window. I have a very vivid memories of 2010, yeah, fall 2010, getting into Slenderman videos on YouTube, like... Marble Hornets, Tribe 12, all that, and just staying up late, watching them. And at the time, I was, I was and remained to be very lazy. I had moved into this where I currently live uh, fairly recently. Still hadn't put up the curtains on my window. Uh, so when I went to bed at night, it was just this large person-sized window right near my bed. Uh, and in addition... You know, not spoiling or revealing where I'm living exactly, but my window opens onto like a lower portion of the roof, which is accessible by fire escape. So emphasis on the accessible. And in those nights in which I would just watch a lot of Slenderman stuff and then try to go to bed, I would very frequently imagine just looking out that window and seeing something scaring right back at me. That does seem like a divergence but it kind of highlights like what I find very appealing about horror is that is it makes you scared of something that doesn't exist. It's a you know in the same way that like a drama can make you cry over characters that aren't real. Uh, horror kind of like taps into this base, primal, subconscious fear that exists in everybody. And I found over the years and through my many explorations of horror fictions, it's a great way to, you know, it's like a kind of exposure therapy. Like, that's the way I think of it. You know, not a replacement for actual professional structured therapy, but something to accompany it. Uh, I would like to get into, like, the therapeutic benefits of horror uh, at a later point. But for now, I, I just want to define what I mean by new horror cinema, which I mentioned earlier. So... The 2010s, this decade, is a fantastic time for horror. Maybe like the most inventive decade for horror since the 70s, which brought us stuff like the early works of uh, Wes Craven and John Carpenter, my favorite movie, Alien. Uh, Like the 70s, it's a time where uh, horror directors and filmmakers are getting very inventive, uh, stepping outside the box of, like... The standards and the tropes of big mainstream Hollywood horror, which, you know, occasionally turns out something really cool and inventive, but can also be focus-tested to death as a way of appealing to mass audiences. And, you know, what's scary, what's very scary to one person may not be scary to somebody else. And so when you get these big focus-tested works of horror, like Saw, like your Insidiouses and Conjurings, like a lot of the peaks and valleys are kind of 
massaged out of it in appeal, an attempt to appeal to the largest possible audience. This isn't like a lowest common denominator diss. It's just more like horror is very personal. And big studio horror tends to be impersonal, which is why I'm concerned about the upcoming uh, adaptation of It, my favorite Stephen King novel, one of my favorite novels. Back onto new horror. So I think the advent of digital cinematography in the last decade or so, uh, with budding filmmakers being able to film entire professional-looking movies on these little DSLR cameras, uh, like the ones put up by Canon and Nikon, you know, it means that you don't have to, like, send out a lot of money to rent a film camera. It means you don't have to put up with a photographic lab to get the color timing correct or, like, a professional physical editing suite. You can do this all on your laptop now. And consequently, you have a lot of very inventive people doing really cool stuff with small budgets and unknown actors. And you see explosion of really talented independent horror directors like Ty West, who's responsible to, for some of the best horror movies of the last few years, The House of the Devil, The Sacrament, uh, my personal favorite of his, The Innkeepers. You have folks like Joe Swanberg. Uh, you have folks like Joe Swanberg, Lee Janiak, whose debut uh, Honeymoon, I will have to talk about it at some point because it's it's something. It's pretty fantastic. But one of the key movies of this new horror movement is The Babadook. So it's a funny sounding name, uh, but it's the name of a monster, so that makes a bit more sense. It's an Australian horror film, uh, technically an Australian-Canadian production, that came out in 2014. It was the debut feature film of Jennifer Kent. I consider it to be one of the premier works of new horror cinema. Just one of those small movies, originally available only on-demand rental, that everyone started talking a bit about a few years ago. And people were talking about it for a reason, because that is a very effective work of new horror. And today, I would like to focus on it and get into some smaller horror works you can read and watch for free online. And yeah, so just grab yourself a cup of tea. And, you know, kick back. Listen to me talk about spooky stuff. So The Babadook, set in modern day, but it's kind of hard to tell at times. It has a balance of technology and aesthetic that reminds me both of the early 2000s. Like, you still have corded phones, you still have DVDs and low-tech TVs. But, like, the shadows and the type of stuff shown on TVs, the use of silent film within the movie itself reminds me a ton of like early 20th century expressionism like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It focuses on widowed mother Amelia raising a hyperactive, hypervigilant kid, a uh, loving kid still, who has an intense fear of monsters. The widowed thing isn't a spoiler, by the way. You find this out in the very early moments of the movie. So... The Babadook straddles the line between psychological and supernatural horror. And you, by the end, both are totally valid readings of it. It's not like there's a definitive moment where you think, oh, this is all in this person's head, or oh, this is conclusively a ghost or a demon or something. You know, you can read the movie both ways, depending on your personal taste, and it's still very effective and gets its message across. 
So, as mentioned before, Samuel, very hyperactive, hypervigilant kid. He's scared of monsters, but also really wants to protect his mom from monsters. And with that out of the way, like, he feels like he has to step up and be the man, even though he's, like, six or seven. Uh, so he builds traps and makeshift weaponry, like a surprisingly effective handheld crossbow that fires darts, or, like, a backpack-mounted uh, catapult. Uh, you know, Amelia... She works a thankless job at a retirement home. She's just trying to put up with this. Like, the kids' students, the kids' uh, fellow students and teachers, they're having trouble with him. Like, her own sister and Samuel's cousin, not a big fan of him because he's just this weird, intense little kid who constantly runs his mouth. And Amelia is just like this quiet, put upon woman, just. Oh, she's just trying to make a go of this. Like, I have introduced this movie to actual parents. I myself am not a parent, but having spoken with those parents who have watched it, they have finished watching the movie and walked away and just, you know, say like, oh, God, I feel her pain. Oh, God. Like, this is too real. The whole trying to kindly tell the kid to shut up without telling them to shut up, trying to find even, like, an iota of sleep especially when you have a really young one. You know, it is absolutely a work of parental horror. And I imagine that in the event that if and when I have kids, the Babadook will resonate me even more than it already has. So things really kick into gear when uh, preparing for bed one night, Sam pulls out this book he found at the top of the shelf, this very creepy pop-up book called Mr. Babadook. And it tells the story of this top hat wearing shadowy figure who will invite himself into your home with three knocks. Ba 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 duk duk duk. And as it goes on, Samuel, evidently never having read this story before, gets the shit freaked out of him. Uh, and over the next few days, uh, Amelia has to try and find a way to temper her son's even more like hypervigilance and terror of monsters. I'm stumbling over my own words here. I'm, I do this better in conversation and writing. I'm sorry. Um, but then Amelia becomes concerned that something is stalking her and Samuel. And if you're not a fan of jump scares and stuff like that, you're in luck. I'm not a fan of jump scares either, and the Babadook is blessedly free from them. But what you get instead is long building tension, scanning the background, wondering, did I see that? Was, that? was that my mind playing tricks on me? Is there something following them? What's going on? Kent, like, especially for like a debut like feature, masterfully like plays with the shadows and that creeping fear of is there something in this room with me? Like, am I just paranoid? Is is my paranoia completely true and valid? Uh, and it goes to some places. Like, I want to avoid spoilers until I'm able to get into discussions with other people about, like, the themes and plot of these uh, movies. But, like, I will say this much. I think it is 
a way better adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining uh, than the famous Stanley Kubrick adaptation ever was. I'll get into my feelings on Kubrick's The Shining at a later date, but I have always found that that movie as beautifully like constructed and scored and edited it is it takes like a very powerful story of addiction recovery and domestic violence in the novel and makes it parody because Kubrick was obsessed with from the beginning just like getting his actors to ham it up like Jack Nicholson Shelley Duvall Scatman Crothers like just like crank it up to 11 from the start people and like the moment that Jack Nicholson appears on camera a few minutes into the film, he's just like eyebrows arched, grinning like a madman. You know, the Shiny is a story of a, a mostly good man, Jack Torrance, trying to fight his worst impulses. Uh, and like it is a genuine struggle for that character throughout the novel. And there are like, times you think, like, oh, Jack can make it out of this. You don't get that impression from uh, Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance. You know from the beginning, like, oh yeah, he's going to go acts crazy. So the Babadook deals with very similar, like, concept. The idea that there are times where being a parent is very difficult. Where, like, you get angry, but you know that you have to be responsible and you have to find a way of maintaining that anger so you can be, you know, you don't take it out on the wrong person, like some kid who may be annoying, but is ultimately kind of ignorant about how human interactions are. And you want to be sad. You kind of want to wallow in your grief when you are sad, but like you have to keep it together for the sake of your kid. And the Babadook recognizes that those impulses, those worries, they, they build over a very long time. And if you don't have a means of addressing them like constructively, you can end up taking those out on the wrong person. So, like, ultimately, like, the acting of the Babadook gets pretty over the top by the end, but it's something they've earned. It's something they've built toward throughout the entirety of the movie, and it helps that the acting in it is, like, super good as well. So, Essie Davis, uh, you may know her from uh, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. She plays Fryn Fisher? I only have seen pictures of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. I've never watched an episode. I don't know how that character's first name is pronounced. I'm sorry. But she's tremendous as uh, Amelia in The Babadook. Uh, she's also apparently a good friend of director Jennifer Kent. And the two of them work together to, like, realistically portray this woman going through a lot of grief. Uh, like, not, like, not having a good outlet to deal with that grief... And, like, through fear, through paranoia, through sheer unrelenting stress, ending it up on taking it out like someone who is very precious to her. And props also need to be given to Noah Wiseman, uh, the little kid who played, who plays uh, Amelia's son, Samuel. There's been some criticism directed at the Babadook, namely Wiseman's performance, that Samuel is just, like, so over-the-top annoying. That, like, that's... It gets stuck in their craw. And I get those criticisms. Like, I'm one of those people who really love kids. Uh, I understand why people find kids annoying, especially loud, screaming, uncontrollable little kids who aren't yours. And, you know, from the start, like, Amelia is portrayed as this very tired, put-upon, but hardworking woman who just doesn't really have a time to give herself a break. 
And, like, the way she, her character is framed in the movie, she's, like, always wearing white. Uh, like, Jen, uh, S.E. Davis is just, like, very subdued for the most part for, like, the duration of that plot. And then you have Samuel, who's constantly being shot in shadow with, like, borderline bags under his eyes. And you see, like, this kid wearing on his mother. And you understand her feelings where she's just like tired of this annoying little kid and she doesn't know how to keep that bottle up for much longer. And what it does very insidiously, very skillfully is gets you in the mindset of an abusive parent or like sympathizing with an abusive parent, understanding where those feelings may come from while still making it clear in the end that, like, oh, this this is wrong. Like, a parent should not think this way about their child and should not act this way towards their child. And the climax of that movie is just a complete role reversal where Noah Wiseman as Samuel comes out as this tiny little Kevin McAllister-esque badass, and Essie Davis is terrifying. I won't get into the specific circumstances, but, like, she was very much overlooked like in terms of uh, her performance, uh, and I, hey, if you are Australian and you work in the film industry, please watch the Babadook and give Essie Davis more like shots at doing stuff because she is really good. And for that matter, uh, Noah Wiseman as well. And it recognizes ultimately in the end that these feelings like of grief and of resentment for one's own offspring. Like, however negative may be, they may never go away forever. You have to learn to live with them. You have to grow with these feelings and around them. I won't say much more about the specifics of the plot and definitely not the ending. I will say that it has an unconventional ending for a horror movie. Uh, and I'm very happy it ended the way it did. So please give The Babadook a shot. It's not currently available to stream on Canadian Netflix may be available on U.S. Netflix, uh, but it's definitely available to rent on YouTube. So that concludes the little movie portion of this. Now I'm going to point you towards a cool little viral video on YouTube. If you can't afford a rental or if you don't want to pay up the money for the Babadook at this time, I'd like to point you toward No Through Road. It's a short horror film found on YouTube by, forgive me here, Indran Cole 3, so I-N-D-R-A-N-C-O-L-E-3. I don't know how to pronounce the username. In any case, I will be including uh, links in the episode notes uh, to the YouTube rental page for The Babadook uh, to this video as well. Uh, short horror film released in 2009 about a quartet of British youths who go on a trip to the countryside one night, uh, and they get stuck in a, a loop of sorts. Like, it doesn't get into the, this first video at least, doesn't get into the mythology of what's going on, what the this vehicle and its occupants are being subjected to, but in the vein of Blair Witch Project, there's kind of like a space-time loop sort of thing going on. And then, to their additional horror, uh, the British youths find out that there is something else in this loop with them, and it does not have their best interests in mind. Uh, very low budget short. Uh, it is only 
9 minutes and 12 seconds, so find yourself 10 minutes before bed and you may want to turn the light on afterwards. Makes great use of a very specific clip of music, namely this looped skipping portion of a Gillian Welch song that you may have heard already if you've watched the great modern slasher film, The Strangers. Uh, you know, short little film, super effective ending, uh, and it's available free to watch on YouTube. The link will be in the show notes. And lastly, I want to, if you're into more slower paced, you know, reading time, if you feel like an hour or so to kill before bed, I'm going to introduce you to a short series of short stories that you can be found on the no sleep portion of subreddit. So while it's not its actual formal title, The Whistlers is a series of short stories written by user The Whistlers on Reddit posted to the No Sleep Horror Short Story subform. The framing device is that the narrator, you know, purchased this old secondhand backpack and inside they find a journal containing a series of entries, you know, presumably by its former owner. Uh, and the entries detail three people horribly lost in the woods and kind of in the vein of Blair Witch, concerned that they're being stalked by something, namely an entity that, you know, whistles just like this sound. And it doesn't sound like much on the start, but like, I'm not sure at the point where I want to start revealing plot details, whether or not I just want to provide like a little synopsis. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's a series of short stories. So if you look up the link in the show notes, uh, you'll find that at the end of each entry is a link to the next in that series. And I highly recommend you read it. I read that a few years ago, around the time of its release in 2015. Um, and have been, being someone who reads a lot of no sleep, it is effective. There's a lot of crap on no sleep, a lot of, wow, this is a completely weird contrivance that this would be someone's journal or something or that be writing about this. The Whistlers feels authentic enough that someone would be writing about this as a kind of apocalyptic log, their last days. So do check that out as well. So I just like to Thank everybody for listening. This is kind of clunky and kind of nervous sounding. This is my first time ever recording a podcast and is more of my excuse to edit, like learn how to edit and record. And I'm recording this on a phone with the basic recorder function. I don't even have a proper microphone. I'm just using the phone. So you're going to hear some pops and clicks and low quality in general. But, you know, just wanted to put something on paper, so to speak, see if this could work. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this debut episode of Outside of a Dream, uh, and stay tuned. Outside of a Dream is produced and hosted by Daniel Link. The music you're hearing is Deep Blue by Ben Sound, which you can find at www.bensound.com.